Thank you, Clifton. Um, Clifton's dad was here today, so we thought we should get him up front so his dad could see him. Um, <laughs> we're giving a hard time. Yeah, Clifton is so much behind the scenes, we've got to get him back up here again, too. He, we always enjoy him, so um, great to have the team that we have here in ministry. You guys remember the baby boomer thing, you know, when they all started the baby boomer? Some of you don't remember that, but if you go back to the whole thing with the baby boomers, things began to really boom, all right? We hadn't seen such explosive growth in our country before, and so all of a sudden, you have bigger everything, right? You have bigger hospitals, you have bigger homes, you have bigger neighborhoods, you have bigger schools, you have bigger businesses, bigger supermarkets, you have bigger churches, Right? And some people really got obsessed with the growth. Some people forgot that churches, you know, we measure how well churches are doing is by how people are loving God and how they're loving others. But it became all about bodies, bucks, and buildings. And the church growth movement did some good things. But it became suspect because in some cases it got extreme. And I, as a young guy, you know, I, was, I, I thought a lot of it was good. Some of it, you know, was helpful for me. But I began to get a little suspicious of all this emphasis on growth, growth, growth. And I, I had a dinner one time with a guy who was a church growth expert. And I asked him this question because it was really bothering me. I said, could you grow a church regardless of what your message is? And you know what his answer was? Yes, because you grow a church just like you grow a business. And that bothered me. Does that bother you? Yeah, that really bothered me. And, and so today, we're continuing our series, The Church in the World. And we're actually going to be going to a passage that I think is perhaps the primary passage we could look at this, seeing how God grew churches, what he would ask us to do in growing a church. And I think we'll find it much different uh, than some of the stuff that we've heard. Now, in order to understand this, we need a little bit of context. So last week, we were talking about Peter. For those of you that weren't here, we had a bunch of folks up at the, you know, guys up at the men's retreat. And we were talking about Peter and how God used him to figuratively open the gates of heaven for everybody. We got kind of excited about that last week because we went around and we said, how many of you are Jewish? And nobody here was Jewish. And see, Christianity is the most multicultural, you know, multi-ethnic religion there is. I mean, everybody is welcome in. And that's what a Gentile is to a Jew, is the Gentiles are those everybody else. And that's us, most of us. And so by God's grace, we're welcomed in. Now, once that happens, it changes the whole game. And now everything's going to be a little bit different. And so today we're going to look at the first Gentile church that we know of. There may have been some other ones that kind of started, but this is the first one we actually know that it really took off and it went, and we're going to look at the growth of the first Gentile church. We're going to find it in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We'll be looking at um, Acts chapter 11, verses uh, 19 through 30. Let me read it. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus, the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so we see the growth of the first Gentile church. And the first thing that they do as we get into this is they're telling people the good news. They're telling everybody about the good news. Now, Luke is the author, and he backs up, and he wants us to remember a little bit more context. He says, remember when Stephen was stoned, and there was this persecution. It was instigated, um, we learn later, by Saul of Tarsus. And Saul began to chase these guys all over the place, and he wanted their heads, and he was putting them in prison. And the, the um, early believers are just scattered all over. And it seems most of them headed north. Uh, Saul chased them as far as Damascus in modern-day Syria, and then he turned to the Lord himself. And those persecutions ended. But it's interesting, the word for persecution is the same word for affliction or trouble. If you're under persecution, you're a displaced person, right? I mean, think about it. You lose your job, you lose your home, you lose family members and friends, and you're out on your own, and you want to get as far away from Jerusalem as you possibly can. And so they just kept heading north. A lot of them settled in Phoenicia, which is northern Palestine and modern-day Lebanon. Others went out to the island of Cyprus, which is right off the coast, directly off the coast of Syria and modern-day Syria and modern-day Turkey. And still others went to Antioch, which was in ancient Syria, but today it's actually in Turkey just above, um, you know, just right above uh, Syria. And so those were all the places that these people went. But when they went there, they were telling people all about the Lord, except they were only telling Jewish people. Because in their mind, that was, that was who you would tell. And you say, well, how could you tell Jewish people when you were so far away from the land of the Jews? How do you do that? You ever think about that? Remember, they had the Jewish diaspora. That was where they were dispersed through persecution all throughout the known world, all throughout the Roman Empire. And so you'd go to these places, and there'd be dense populations of Jewish people, Jewish communities, Jewish what we'd later call ghettos. And they would go to those people, and they understood that when Jesus said to reach the world, he meant reach all these Jews that are scattered throughout the world. But we learned last week through visions given to Saul of Tarsus after he turned to the Lord and to Peter that now the doors are open to everybody. And so that begins to change. And there are some people that are bold, and they begin to reach out to others. And they are people from the island of Cyprus and people from Sereni, which is modern-day Libya in North Africa. And guess what their names were? We don't know. We can kind of guess because if you go to chapter 13, they have some elders that are serving there, and one is Simeon the Niger, and the other one is Lucius of Sereni. Also, do you remember the person who carried Jesus' cross for him? Simon of Sereni. And we're told later in Romans that he had sons, Rufus and Alexander. Perhaps they were part of it. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Most of the great things that have been done in human history have been done by people of anonymity. We don't know their names. And you know who that would probably be? Basically everyone in this room. 
Nobody's going to know our names, but God will. And he'll reward us for our faithfulness. And so these people are anonymously used by God, at least historically speaking, and they go ahead and they go to Antioch. Antioch's the perfect place to go. Antioch's still there. It's about 15 miles uh, inland from the Mediterranean Sea. The Orontes River flows to it. And so it's a port city and simultaneously this big commercial center. It's in a beautiful area. It's, it's in a place called, uh, it, it's a very fertile valley, and it is shielded by snow-capped mountains and has a very nice climate. Maybe you want to go there for a vacation. Um, but it's in Turkey, so it's a little bit crazy area these days. But it was very nice, and it was centuries old. It had been conquered by Rome, and it was the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. How many people? Between five and six hundred thousand. That's a lot in those days. Five to six hundred thousand. And it was cosmopolitan from its beginning. In other words, everybody was there. It was one of the most mixed and mixed up places in the world. Practically every nationality that existed in those days lived there and was represented in some way. Practically every religion, practically every temple you could imagine, everybody was there. It was just a hodgepodge of people. They were known as vigorous, aggressive, people. They knew their business. They knew their commercial work. They were sexually, um, you know, corrupt. I mean, they were sexually immoral. And they had a wicked wit. Kind of remind me of some port cities I know. Can you think of any? Maybe San Francisco. How about maybe Portland? Or if you like coffee, Seattle, right? And so they're a lot like that, all of them. They have that kind of mix. And so you have a lot of people. You have a lot of culture. You have a lot of nationalities. You have a lot of religions. You have a lot of thinking. You have a lot of questioning. You have a lot of openness in some ways. You have a, a place that's just the perfect place to explode. And with that numbers, you could explode and send people all around the world. Hmm, almost sounds like somebody planned this. And so they head into Antioch, and uh, there were, by the way, about 25,000 Jewish people, we think, that lived in Antioch. And so they started off probably working in the synagogue and didn't even realize what was happening, and it just morphed into all these people around them. And next thing you know, they were ministering to these people, and people were coming to know the Lord. What was their strategy? They simply shared the good news. They went to people, and they, they basically said, you need to admit that you're a sinner, you need of a Savior, Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. And they gave that message, and people in droves came. And God's favor was upon them. And all these people exploded into this megachurch. Amazing story. couple thoughts. First one that hit me was, this is really all about God. This is really all about God. He set the whole thing up, like we were just kind of mentioning with Antioch. We can kind of pace the times. We don't know exactly, but we can be pretty precise on some of the time. We believe Jesus uh, was crucified around AD 30, that, the, um, that around AD 33 we had the persecutions that, that Saul started, and then we moved to AD 35, Saul comes into the Lord, then he comes and visits uh, Jerusalem about AD 38. This is about early 40s. That means the church is about 10 years of age. They've been given time to train the people, to set them up, to get them settled in, in strategic locations, everything ready to go. 
And what a perfect place to go. You're getting near the center of the empire, and they've got this strategic location. God did it all. He set the whole thing up. I believe he's setting things up in our lives, too, that we don't even realize. The second thing is this whole thing about the Jews. Is it okay to minister only to Jewish people? What do you think? One person. So there's one person who has an issue with Jewish people here in our <laughs> church. <laughs> no, it's not. There's nothing wrong with ministering to the Jews as an isolated people group, but you never want to isolate so much that you exclude others. So you minister to whoever God puts in your path. You look at Jews for Jesus. Jews for Jesus will talk to anybody that wants to talk about God. They'll talk to anybody about Jesus. But their focus is going to be on Jewish people who are not normally going to be in interaction with other people. A lot of times it's language-oriented. Like in in, uh, Oakdale, we have a number of Hispanic churches. They don't speak English very well, so it's very difficult for people that don't speak Spanish very well to interact with people that speak another language. So you will see that happen. But in most cases, we are all supposed to be together. And we should ideally reflect the culture that we're in. Is that true with us? We're, we're a younger church, so we're going to be younger, but we have a mix of ages. Um, I would say we're mostly middle class. Uh, I'm going to guess that we're mostly white European. Does that sound fair? That's pretty much what Oakdale is. We don't have a lot of African Americans. We must have some Asians because we've got some awfully good Asian restaurants, but uh, you don't see a lot of Asians. We could have more Latinos represented in our, in our church. That would be a good thing. But I don't think from this passage it's that you worry so much about it. You just minister to the people God brings in your path. You know, there's 8 to 15 people or so that you're going to see regularly and you're going to build relationships with. Minister to them, love them, encourage them to come to church and that kind of stuff. And it has a rippling effect. And in the end, you'll, you'll reach everybody that, that you need to reach. It'll just keep, keep flowing out. Um, so it, it gets set up. Now, the second thing that happens here is we see the encouragement of a godly pastor. Though he's never called a pastor, he essentially functions in this role, and that's Barnabas. Barnabas is going to be sent to this area. This news comes to Jerusalem, and I think the apostles in Jerusalem were a little bit concerned. This is a long ways away, 310 miles. So they may, it may have taken them even a year or more to get all the information. And there are some people that are happy about what is happening, some people that are sad about what's happening, some people are upset and discouraged. So they've got to get boots on the ground to see what's going on. They did the same thing, remember, in Samaria with Philip, where they sent Peter and John. But this time they send this dude named Barnabas. Who is Barnabas? You know, I mean, it, it was his nickname Barney? Um, did he inspire the, you know, a purple dinosaur and a prehistoric cartoon character? You know, who, who was this guy? Now, there's a picture of him. That's a, a, a selfie that he took years ago. Um, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit that, that we know about Barnabas is that one of the reasons they probably sent him is because of who, where he came from. We're told a little bit about him in Acts 4. And we're told that his real name was, anybody remember? Joseph. And he was from the island of Cyprus, or so he was a Cypriot, and the Cypriots were some of the people that started this church, so he's a homeboy. He's going back to his neighborhood. Um, That much we know about him. We know that he was a Levite, which meant that his ancestors were probably priests in Jerusalem. Now, there are some traditions about him. These are not proved, and we can't prove, and we don't know for sure, but they are quite intriguing. One is, if he, was, if he was a Levite, he was more, probably more educated and wealthier. And some believe that he actually studied under the great teacher, Gamaliel, um, but he was a few classes ahead of Saul. And he may have actually known Saul from before. 
more likely, one thing that I can say that's probably pretty, pretty likely is that he was used to lead his relative, we'll later learn that in, the, in Acts that she was his relative, Mary, to Christ. His relative Mary was the mother of John Mark who wrote Mark's gospel. And so he played a role in their lives. Uh, furthermore, there's some other traditions that say that he first encountered Jesus in Jerusalem, followed him to Galilee, became one of the famous 70 disciples, and uh, therefore would have been one of the 120 that started the church. We don't know if these things are true, but they're, they're, they're plausible. I mean, they, they, they could be. Uh, what we do know for sure is that he was nicknamed Barnabas because Barnabas in Greek means son of encouragement. And every time we encounter him, he's encouraging people. What a great thing to say about somebody. When we first meet him in Acts 4, he has property and he gives his property to the church to help the church. And that encourages the church. Now, he's involved for, for some time. And again, we think he might have known Saul because when Saul comes back to Jerusalem, he's the one who befriends him and introduces him to the apostles. By this time, Barnabas is a guy that everybody really respects, and so they decide to send him to kind of take care of this thing. He's probably good at mediating problems and bringing reconciliation, and he likely went with an entourage of people, and they all traveled all the way up to Antioch, and they got there, and um, there's something really uh, instructive about what happens here. Um, biblically instructive, theologically instructive. Notice that he doesn't do what Peter and John did. He doesn't go and pray over these guys and say, oh, you know, let's see if the Holy Spirit works in their life so that we can know for sure that they're true believers. He doesn't do that, does he? See, before they would do that, they would pray over them because they didn't know, and they would speak in unlearned foreign languages, or they'd start performing miraculous healings. He doesn't do that this time. He doesn't need to. It's already been confirmed that Gentiles can be believers. So the only question is, is their life changing? And so he observes their life, and you know what he says? He sees the grace of God. And he is overwhelmed by the evidence that these guys' lives have been transformed. And he is glad, which means he is rejoicing. He is overwhelmed and likely sends the message back to Jerusalem. Everything's well. In fact, everything's fantastic. This is exciting stuff. And by the way, I think I'm going to stay here because they need a guy to help them. And I'm going to stay and minister here. And then he does what he does best, which is what? He encourages to encourage is to give somebody courage, to empower them, to strengthen them, to inspire them, to motivate them, and at times when they fall down, to pick them back up and comfort and console them. That's the kind of guy he was. And he did it particularly in an area that we don't always think of. He didn't encourage them as much for salvation because they had come to the Lord, but he recognized that it doesn't end with salvation. That when a person comes to know the Lord, they need to cling to him with all their heart, mind, and soul and keep growing in their relationship with him. And so he was encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And he encouraged them not only through his words, but through his life. He's the only man, I believe, other than Jesus in the New Testament called good. It means that he was a man who was uh, honorable and upright. He's the kind of guy you could trust. He was genuine. He was real. He was a man of honesty and integrity. And this is what's more important. All the character that he had, guess where it came from? The Holy Spirit living in him. It came from his relationship with God as he had faith, as he trusted in him. Isn't that powerful stuff? What a, what a great guy he must have been. You ever wonder what he looked like? Well, now you know because you've seen the picture earlier. But yeah, you've seen it now. But did you know that it's interesting, a few chapters later, they say that Saul and Barnabas are traveling 
and they're far away, and these people in the pagan land, they think that Saul is Mercury, the god who is usually the spokesman of the gods. And they think that Barnabas is Zeus, the chief god. And it's interesting because Zeus was supposed to be born in um, Cyprus. But the pictures of Zeus, every time there's drawings of Zeus, he's always this middle-aged man, bearded middle-aged man, who's kind of you know, powerfully built and muscular and has sort of a regal and commanding presence. And every picture, every drawing we have of Barnabas is he seems to be kind of a big husky guy balding with a beard. So it's probably not all true, but he probably had kind of a commanding but gentle presence about him. So we've got to know him a little bit better. What's the result of this? I think that it becomes contagious. Everybody's encouraging everybody else. And because everybody's just loving on each other, the church just keeps growing. So when you go to church, let's be honest now, first thing you look for when you go to church is what? You want to know the the (laughs) coffee. What? (laughs) So we do have somebody from Seattle here. Uh, Or from Starbucks. Um, Coffee is important. Uh, We also look for the vision, mission, and values. Not usually. The philosophy of the church? No, not usually. The doctrine of church? Sometimes. The music? Yeah, we like that. But we're looking a lot of times for the pastor. You know, the guy who's, who's up front, is he, you know, stylish and flashy and is he a great communicator? Is he dynamic? Do you remember what he said? Do you apply it to your life? Is he, you know, make you laugh? You know, do you, man, is he, that's what we're looking for, right? Um, and we go and we, somebody said, thank you very much. Um, uh, but, you know, we look for all these crazy things, right? Um, that he's just incredible. But here's the problem. He could be the most dynamic speaker in the world, but if he doesn't have character, if he's always talking about himself and his exploits and putting others down, if he's not biblical in what he says, if he doesn't always tell the truth, if when he's not speaking, he's unapproachable and he has attitude problems, that church could grow, but it's not because it's blessed by God. See, because this man I met told me that churches can grow by human effort. So there's true growth and there's false growth. How do you know the difference? True growth is when a church grows and the leadership of the church has character. And false growth is when it's just people pulling out all the gimmicks and just doing it on their own. So this puts a little bit of pressure, you know, on us as pastors and as me, you know, as the lead pastor here. Um, You know, I hope that you're not here just because I'm so stylish and flashy and cool. (laughs) Don't have to worry too much about that. Um, I am stylish, but... um, it, it, it is humbling when you read about this stuff because I really think that Barnabas is the classic example of what a pastor should be. This is what we should look for. Um, and yeah, I don't know that any of us really are there yet. It's, it's a process, and we need you to pray for us and support us. And hopefully we're growing in these areas, but especially trusting in God more and more and growing in our relationship with him is so important uh, for all of us that minister here. And a great example. Great example for us, and this is what we really should be looking for. You know, we look at a pastor. Now, the other thing I like, though, about it is how contagious it is. If we're doing our job well and we're encouraging and we're, we're living lives of integrity and we're trusting in God, it should become contagious, which means you should all be encouragers too. You should be encouraging each other to read the Bible and to pray. and You should be encouraging each other when you're up and down. You should be laughing with each other and crying with, with each other. We were talking in our small group this week, and one of the things we talked about is it's great to laugh with people, but who are the people you get closest to? 
The people you cry with. Who are the people you hurt with? There should be people in this room. Who are the people that take care of one another? How can you lift each other up? How can you say good things to each other? You know, get involved in each other's life. Boy, we can, we can make life fun just by encouraging each other and following Barnabas' example. And it happens in a lot of different ways. It happens on Sunday morning. And by the way, sometimes small group people forget that the meeting is not on Sunday morning, it's during the week. Sunday morning is a time to, to greet new people, to get to know people you've never met before. People that are visiting the church or people that aren't in a small group or aren't in your small group. So really make a point to get to know people. Help them put their chairs away. Leave parking open for elderly people and visitors and people with lots of kids. You just think through in your mind, what can you do extra to make people feel loved and appreciated and cared for? That's what Barnabas did, and I think that's what the people did in the church, and that's why they grew. question um, that I had, I thought, boy, he goes through a lot of information on Barnabas. Why do you think Luke writes so much about Barnabas? Because from what we understand, Luke was from Antioch. He was probably part of this church, and he's writing affectionately about his pastor. Isn't that cool? Now, the next thing that we see is team ministry. That was so much a part of the growth of the church. Barnabas says, I can't do this by myself. So he travels to get um, Saul in modern-day Tarsus, in modern-day uh, Turkey, and that doesn't sound like a big deal until we understand that he's traveling 87 miles, 86 miles. Then he's got to come back. Now, he may have had a Tesla, but there were not any places to charge it, right? I mean, there's not, he doesn't have GPS. He doesn't have computer. He doesn't have phone. He may not even have a street address. But by God's grace, he tracks this guy Saul down, and he persuades him to come back with him because he knows Saul's a great teacher. And a couple things we learn right away. One is how important teamwork is. Do you know that every example we have, almost every example we have of Jesus, when he assigns somebody a task, he assigns even the smallest task for usually two people. He always puts two on it. When he leaves, he leaves 12, primarily to run things. And those 12, when Peter goes and travels, he travels with John or later with six other people. Saul and Barnabas will travel together or with other people. It's all about teamwork. It's all about needing each other. It's never about just the one person. We all are a team. That's why we have three pastors. That's why we have multiple people involved in servant leader ministries within our church. All of our small groups are, are designed so that ideally we have maybe, you know, we have couples that are working as teams with each other or people that are working in teams with each other leading those. Um, we have it happening everywhere. Amanda Van Neuenhausen has taken over our children's ministry, children's coordinator, doing a great job. And uh, Betty Williams still working with her. Lots of people working as a team. That's an example. We're all working as, as teammates. Another thing that's important is that Saul was gifted in what he did. I believe he was one of the great teachers in history, and he brings him back to assist him in teaching. Um, so character is important, but gifting is important too. If you're going to require a pastor to do a lot of teaching, he should have some teaching ability. Teaching ability varies. I mean, there are some people that are incredible in their teaching abilities. Um, and there are some people that you'll enjoy their style more than other people just because that's how we're made. But the persons that speak here in a church should at least be able to get you to the point where they're teaching what the Bible says biblically, it's clear, you can understand it, and you can take it and apply it to your life here in Oakdale. 
It will vary some, but that's, where we, that's, that's the target we're hitting. We're trying to hit every time, and we want you to pray for us that we can do that, and we'll do the best we can. But what would it have been like to be learning under Barnabas and Saul in the first church? Can you imagine? I mean, you have no information, and these guys come in and they teach you. What a trip. That would have been unbelievable. Um, and, and one more thing that I see with these guys um, is, is that they're not just teaching on Sunday morning. They're, the word for taught means doctrine. They're taking these guys aside in smaller groups and they're training them over the course of a year. They're giving them training in the basics. They're teaching them the basics about Jesus and how to apply that to their lives. And they're going through and doing it with everybody. Isn't that cool? If they were able to publish things, they may put together something like the walk, which is what we've done. Or later the next steps to train people as they grow more deeply and become leaders in the church. Um, so there's all these things that they, they're, they're developing this kind of stuff. Um, we hope later, you know, to train elders and put elders on board and Lord willing, maybe have more academic classes called Mountain View U or something like that in the future because we just keep on growing in our knowledge of Christ. That's what they did. This is our core of discipleship where you start with a person, they're an unbeliever, they become a believer and you connect them with the church. And then they grow in the church, they become a growing believer, and then you train them and they become a maturing believer and then they train others. That's what they were doing. Paul writes about it in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says that what we've learned from him, you know, what people learn from him, they should train others that can train others and keep it going on continuously. One more interesting thing. And that is, this is the first time they were called Christians. What were, what were we called before? Anybody know? The way, that's, that's one. Yeah, they, they, they weren't always nice names, not always names that I can say. Um, there was a lot of persecution going on, right? But typically, this is the thing that's interesting that we don't always understand. Christianity was not yet separated from Judaism. As far as they were concerned or the world were concerned, they were a sect, that's S-E-C-T, a sect, of, um, of, um, thank, thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay, you got to sit in the back next time, brother. Um, they were a sect of Judaism. So it's kind of like you have, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, and you have this new movement. And this movement generally referred to themselves originally as the fellowship. And then as the church, which we're still called today, which is a formal way of saying fellowship, really, or the assembly. They were called the believers, originally the believers in Christ, and then the disciples or followers of Christ, and then sometimes the Nazarenes, because Jesus was of Nazareth. Around the time of the persecutions, about three years into it, they began to call themselves the Way, and that was the name that stayed with them probably the most in the formative years of the churches. church. This name was probably given to them by the people of Antioch. It says they were called. It wasn't they called themselves. They were called. It may have been derisive at first and then later adopted by the church, but it was certainly problematic. And this is why. This is what's basically happening. The people of Antioch are saying, you say that you're Jews, but the Jews are waiting for their Messiah. You say he's already come. You say the Messiah or Christ has already come. They're learning from the law of Moses. You're learning from this Christ. You're not Jews. You're Christians. You have your own religion. You follow Christ. You stick to him. You're part of his family. You're part of his household. That's what it means. 
you are claiming to be something other than Jew Jewish. And that is a problem because therefore you are not a recognized religion of the Roman government and can therefore be persecuted. And so they weren't quick to embrace the name Christian because it designated very clearly that they were not Jewish. Um, it's only used twice more in the Bible and only once by one of the apostles, um, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4. But of course, we become known as Christians later on. Just a little interesting bit of history because somebody may ask you that over lunch this week and you just never know. Uh, you'll have the answer, you know. Um, okay, so then finally we see that uh, they, were, they were giving to others. And they have these people that are prophets. The prophets come down. Have you ever noticed that they always say when they're from Jerusalem, they come down, but they're going north? Do they have problems with direction? No, because they're on Mount Zion, so they're coming down. And they're from God's holy city, so they're coming down. So that's what they would always say. No matter what direction you went, if you came from Jerusalem, you always came down. And so prophets come to town. Prophets were people that said, thus saith the Lord. And today, prophets say this is what the Bible says. Usually, the prophet would primarily be a person that was a very convicting person and very convicting in style and mannerism and speech. And they would try to tell you, you, know, you need to turn from here to here. You need to repent. And you need to make changes in your life. They would really challenge you. Sometimes, to support what they were saying, they would have predictions. But not usually, but they would sometimes. Interesting, in the New Testament, it's almost a 50-50 process. 50% of the time, they're foretelling people what to do. 50% of the time, they're foretelling things. Very interesting. But after that, we don't see that as much in history. So it seems to be something they were doing more at that time. But God, of course, can do it. If it happens, it has to be supported. If you make a prediction, that prediction better come true to show that you're not a false prophet. Today, we don't see that as much, but we still see prophets. I think most um, pastors are kind of a blend of pastors of a blend of prophets and teachers. But then there's some guys that are really prophets. I mean, they're just real exhorters. And they don't usually stay in a church. They usually travel. They're itinerant from church to church. In the old days, they'd speak in America in the camp, you know, the big camp uh, grounds and stuff. They have the big Christian camps. And today, you know what? They usually speak in big churches or a lot of times at camps, at retreats, at conferences. You go to a men's retreat like we did, there's always a guy there who's a prophet in style. Steve Farrar has been there twice, a couple of times, very prophetic in style. Um, Agabus was a prophet. He'll appear again in chapter 21 telling Paul that he's warning him about going to Jerusalem. Agabus at this point was on a scroll tour. Do you know what a scroll tour is? They didn't have books yet, so they had scrolls. He'd written a book, I think. He's written a scroll, or at least he's telling the story about there's going to be a big famine. And he's going around telling everybody this because they need to be prepared. God has put this on his heart that there's churches that are in trouble and we need to take care of them. And especially in Judea because it's an arid climate and there's a lot of desert, they're in trouble. Who's going to take care of them? So he lays this on their hearts and he says, you guys need to take care of each other. And this young church responds and right away they say, we need to take care of them. And so everybody to the best of their ability, second uh, Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7 talks about this too. Some give more, some give less according to what they have. They're all giving sacrificially and they give this money. They don't have an agency to go to. They just send it to Jerusalem and then Jerusalem sends it to all the small churches throughout Judea. They send Saul and Barnabas 310 miles to do it. So they must have had a good, within a year they had trained other people up to run that church while they were gone. 
And they go to Jerusalem, and the apostles apparently aren't there. They have elders. They've already organized themselves into a church, and the apostles are probably traveling around visiting others. So we see a lot happening within a very short period of time. Um, so how is this relevant for us today? We need to be giving. We need to be giving individually. We give to the church and above and beyond as best that we can. Our small groups try to, to, to each adopt ministries in the community where we can serve. And, you know, we set aside 10%, and we hope to do more in time, but 10% of our budget every year goes to world missions. That's, for them, 310 miles away. For us, it's equivalent of being in another country or being overseas, places we can't go, so we send money to that. Uh, we spend 60% of that goes to the Millers in the ministry that they do with refugees in Berlin. Or not just to them, but to our other missionaries. It would also, part of that 60% goes to David Young and the work he does developing churches in restricted access countries. And some of it goes, uh, this year we, we've given some money to um, Eric Smith at this point, uh, who is ministering at a secular college in Southeast Asia and who recently was nearly ripped from his car by an angry mob. I mean, these are people on the front lines. We can't be there, so we pray for them and we send them money. Now, we have 40% left if you, you're doing your math. We split that into two. 20% of that goes for our travel, for us to minister to people for short-term trips. Just like the apostles would go and visit the churches and see what they're doing, we need to do that. Pastors need to go overseas or go wherever it is, observe what they're doing, find out what's going on, encourage them, come back and report. We haven't done that yet. Um, but we're planning this next year, I will probably be going to Berlin. So we're praying about that and probably somebody with me so we can find out, see for ourselves what's going on, encourage them, come back and tell you. And then the rest of it is for emergency funds. Like recently, remember we gave ch uh, churches money to help them through different agencies in Haiti because they had that horrible hurricane there. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's exciting. Does this sound a little bit like our church, what we're talking about? If it does, it should, because we really, I think all churches should model themselves after this. There's a lot of variation, but in general, a lot of this stuff is the kind of stuff that should be happening. Let's take a look at just some quick um, applications today. One we've talked about is you need to tell others. Build relationships with those people around you, love on them, spend time with them, tell them about Jesus, invite them to church. Another one is you need to encourage one another. Pick each other up, laugh with each other, cry with each other, get involved in ministries together, get involved in small groups and ministries within the church. Take care of people when they're here on Sunday mornings. Just let everybody know how much you care about them. Uh, yet another, the third thing we'll say is, is teach others. That means you need to be taught first. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in Bible studies. Make sure that you're growing in your relationship with the Lord. Become part of the discipleship process and then tell others. You don't have to wait, by the way. You can go home today and tell your kids what you learned in church. Taylor's a little young. Um, but you know, they, have to be, they have to be able to hear. You know, I just looked up at uh, Melissa. Um, so they have to be a little bit older, but you can tell your kids. Or talk with your spouse about it or your friends. Talk about the things that you're learning with one another. And finally, be a giver. You know, the Bible says give 10% of what you have to church. Uh, you benefit in the end. Everybody benefits because as we do that, then God continues to bless and honor the things we do and we're able to give more to others and help them in ministry as well. Pray for others, visit them, go overseas as a missionary yourself if God so works in your life. Now, we started off saying, you know, church growth. You know, how do we do church growth? I don't think these guys even worried about it. I think they just did the basic stuff and let God take care of the rest. All these things that we see here should be happening. 
And I mean, we can add different things here and there, but this is the main thrust of it. And what's really interesting is in, in history, this is the last time in the Bible that we see explosive church growth. There are other times where Saul and Barnabas will go to a town and be kicked out of the town. And other times where the churches grow pretty slow, and that seems to be the way it is most of the time. Sometimes there will be a population growth and churches will grow faster. But sometimes God will do something miraculous and churches will grow faster. But our job is to just do the things that we see here and let him be God. We can call ourselves whatever we want. Even if we wanted to start calling ourselves the way again, the bottom line is we need to make sure we're going his way. Okay? So let's make that uh, our character and our walk with God Make that what's most important in our, um, in, our, in our desire to reach others, okay? Join me in a word of prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for this, and I pray that we would just continue to seek after you, that we would first of all grow in our own personal walk with you, and then just uh, that we would allow our love for you to lead us to love others, to love our world, to love those around us, that they too might come into relationship with Jesus. Um, what we're concerned about most, Lord, is your eternal kingdom, that uh, each of us will be there for eternity along with other loved ones. And so we pray that you would guide us in this process and thank you for the privilege of serving you in our church. Amen.